You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Inside Healthcare. I'm your host, Dave Smolar, a senior multimedia specialist here at NCQA. NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance, exists to improve healthcare in America. We want to make healthcare better for everyone. We set expectations of healthcare organizations, measure their performance, and highlight those that do well. And we use science to help us build better health and better choices for all Americans. If you're a fan of this podcast or you have feedback for us, write to us at communications at ncqa.org. We look forward to hearing from you. On today's episode of Inside Healthcare, it's another first for us as I talk with a guest about a patient population that we haven't discussed before. Then we meet an incredible CCE who does everything she can to bring health and light to Richmond, Virginia. Later on in our Fast Fact segment, we celebrate Pride Month with a focus on federal research and support for identifying and resolving gaps in gender-based health equity. But first... Homelessness is everywhere, and the needs of people who are homeless can easily overwhelm a community. In the healthcare ecosystem, there are endless questions about how to treat the homeless, the unhoused, and uninsured in a way that truly benefits them. But putting good, simple ideas in place can be difficult. As we often discuss on this podcast, when it comes to closing gaps in health equity, and this is certainly a huge gap, the solutions for resolving disparities in underserved patient populations can be both simple in statement, but daunting in execution. In this episode, we talk with Dr. Ava Jones, PhD and RN, the Director for Health Equity and Accreditation at United Healthcare Community and State's Florida Plan. I interviewed her after UHC won an NCQA 2022 Health Innovation Award for the United Healthcare Community Plan of Florida Housing Navigation Program. So just to explain, a healthcare navigator, a service often offered by UHC providers, is someone a plan member can call anytime for advice or suggestions on how to pursue a medical issue affecting them or their family. So with that in mind, what's a housing navigator? How can a provider help someone who may have no fixed address, no financial support, and possibly no coverage? And before that happens, how do they identify people who need help? I'll give you a hint. It's all about the data. Connect the data to social determinants of health, then connect those points to health equity priorities, and you get patient-centered outcomes, and a lot more. Here's Dr. Ava Jones telling us where the Housing Navigator program started. Around 2017, uh, we realized through um, um, data um, that we had members who were experiencing various uh, forms of shelter insecurity. And so in looking at that data, um, we determined that we needed to devote energy towards assisting our members. Um, Our mission, the reason we all come to work every day is to help our members live healthier lives. And when there is no security with regard to shelter, um, we're just not going to be able to do that. So the Homeless Navigation Program was developed um, when we assessed direct member data um, from our member interactions. And it became very clear that many of our members had an unmet shelter need. And we launched this effort to ensure that our member needs related to all forms of shelter insecurity and that that we were able to um, address them. And since the inception of the program, we have assisted hundreds of our members with various forms of housing and shelter needs. And I'd imagine you started the program for all those reasons before the pandemic hit. And I I would imagine that these issues have uh, certainly been exacerbated. And uh, by the result of the pandemic and its development, um, it must have been a great tool, to say the least, to have in hand in place when the pandemic hurt a, a great advantage for Florida. Is that correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and as I mentioned, um, our efforts really began in 2017 and in 2018, early in the year, um, 
we, we created our housing uh, navigator program. And since that time, we have dedicated um, staff who partner with a number of community organizations to assist our efforts to best meet the needs of our members. And, and to your very good point, um, with the pandemic, those needs were certainly exacerbated. Um, as I think about our housing navigator program and the opportunity to assist so many of our members. One in particular just really, really stands out. And it was a gentleman who had been experiencing um, homelessness um, for a good while. And um, despite his his obvious health care needs and 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 all of that, um, he said he just wanted to dance again. Apparently, he was a great dancer. He enjoyed dancing and he just wanted to dance again. And so he allowed us to partner with him and 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 following our process to meet his needs. Since we have secured housing for him, he has maintained that housing. He has improved his ability to care for himself um, his use of the emergency room as his primary care provider has decreased tremendously. And he now has a relationship with a primary care provider who he's able to see on a regular basis and he's dancing again. And so that, that story just, it, it, it just says it says it all for me. Mm -hmm. But it also tells you in general, how this um, process can help people can help the whole healthcare uh, ecosystem to reset itself so that people are appropriately going where they normally should be going. And so the hospitals don't get overburdened and the PCPs see the number of patients that they should see. Um, so tell me logistically, what does your team do? Uh, who does what? How is the hierarchy set up in order to get this done? And, and what is your role, especially? How are you involved with this? And so my role, I am the director of quality and um, we have a great team. Um, um, love my team and, and the energy and, and just the innovative thinking um, that we, 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 we come to work with um, on, a, on a daily basis. And so our goal in um, helping our members live a healthier life is really to meet them where they are. And our approach to doing that is um, a holistic approach. Um, the behavioral, the clinical, um, the, 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 a holistic approach. Um, clinical care amounts to about 20% of an individual's health. And approximately 80% of healthcare outcomes can be attributed to other factors, one of which is shelter or housing instability. And so my role and that of my team in helping our members live a healthier life is to improve access to and delivery of community resources that are the gateway to overall well-being and ultimately impact um, not only individual, but community healthcare outcomes. So how do you identify somebody in need? Uh, and, and what, just very briefly, what happens once you identify a, a patient who would benefit from the navigator? How do you reach them or who actually contacts them? Um, what's the process? So, so I would say at a high level, we, we have a myriad of, of ways to discover um, a, a member's need for uh, shelter intervention. Um, we do have dedicated homeless um, navigators, um, case managers who are um, engaged with our members um, on a regularly occurring basis. Um, I mentioned that we have partnerships with um, various community organizations. Um, and certainly we have relationships with our providers. And when we learn about um, members who are experiencing um, shelter insecurity, we, 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 we reach out to them and, and we, 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 we help them forge relationships and, and just really help them navigate, if you will, hence Homeless Navigator Program. We help them navigate um, the, the system um, of resources that they may or may not be uh, aware of that can help them with um, achieving excellence in their healthcare outcomes. And so we, we walk alongside them 
to help them engage with with those resources and community partners and and just to really help them become empowered as they um, own their health and healthcare outcomes and re- resulting in secure shelter. So you're in Florida. This is UHC Florida. Um, and uh, I want to talk about that in terms of being on a state level and having a program that's a state level program, but you're able to help people um, you know, individuals, uh, it's just, it always sounds difficult to do that. Although the answer, part of the answer is we work with CBOs with community-based organizations and, and similar to that, what other States do you know about within UHC that have uh, similar programs and, uh, how can you encourage, uh, further encourage other States, uh, uh, to, uh, participate or, or to have their own housing navigation program? Mm-hmm. That's a really good question. And, and thank you. So um, I'll, I'll answer. There were two questions there. I'll, I'll answer the, the latter one first. How to how would I encourage another state to replicate um, this this awesome program? Um, my first suggestion would be to leverage your data. Um, um, have access to your data so that you're able to um, gain extract intelligence from the data about social determinants of health needs within a specific community, Um, particularly shelter, housing um, needs within that community, and then research partnerships that um, are are willing and available to support. And so how do you replicate? It begins with data. Got to have solid data. You have to be able to extract intelligence from the data to help inform decisions and strategies and approaches to help your members who experience shelter insecurity. United Healthcare has a myriad of programs um, in place to identify and support social determinant of health um, needs for our members. For example, um, we have the My Community Connections program. And this program works across the enterprise to identify members with unmet social needs and leverages partnerships with national and local community-based organizations to ensure that their needs are met. We have direct outreach um, member type of initiatives where we directly reach out to our members. Um, Again, we partner with providers in our community um, who serve our members on a daily basis. We also partner with and invest directly with community organizations that serve our members and their neighbors, applying what we learn about the needs in the communities, that extraction of intelligence from data. Um, and, And moreover, to learn to, to do that, we have to learn about the community capacity and the, re, the resources that they have to meet needs, to step up and help where it's needed the most. So how do you set outcomes or, or goals for the program? Uh, and, and how is it going now? Uh, we have some numbers that were given to us when uh, the program applied for the Innovation Award, but I, I'm sure they've been updated since now. So tell us about your successes so far. Absolutely. Um, So again, we started in 2018 and um, it was as a result of a a need that we um, identified with our members. Um, And since inception of the um, Homeless Navigator Program, we have received about 2,100 referrals from members who were experiencing various degrees of, of homelessness or in danger of being evicted. And we have successfully placed just over 700 um, of our members with stable and or affordable housing. Um, That's exciting, that that really is exciting. Our goal is to um, help as many of our members um, as possible. And, And we do that by continuing to uh, build and expand partnerships and and connect our members with the critical resources that they need. And and the key, David, is is data. And, and so we continue to mine our data um, to determine social determinant of, of health uh, needs. And that's not just looking at our data and and having a 
an anecdotal approach, if you will, to the extraction of intelligence and you know making a decision. We have a scientific method we, using a disparities index uh, equation. And so we look at our key performance measures and, and we look at our social determinant of health um, measures and we apply this, this disparities index to really quantify, if you will, the, the existence of a disparity for a particular social determinant of, of, of health. And so that disparities index equation offers insight and it, it presents a statistically valid approach to determine disparities in clinical outcomes. And, and it, it gives us a scientific filter, David, to, to look at our performance measures and, and where our members are and how we can um, help them. So I wanted to ask you about health equity. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and in many respects, I really <laughs> want to ask you about health equity. Tell me okay. what your title is for UHC now. Okay. My title is Qua- Director um, Health Equity and Accreditation. And when did you receive that title? Um, I received that title last year. Prior to that, my title was quality director. I'm curious if, if you could just tell us for a minute or two uh, how that happened, what your experience has been within UHC Florida. Absolutely. <clears throat> Excuse me. I've been with this awesome company um, 10 years this month, April, um, almost April. And um, United, um, our company is committed to embedding um, health equity into our organization's um, culture and practices, hardwiring that into our day-to-day. And to that end, um, we have established a health equity transformation initiative. And we're, that, that just underscores our commitment to what I just said, embedding health equity into our organization's culture and practice. And, and last year, we, we were recognized with our NCQA health equity accreditation. And, and prior to that, a um, couple of years ago, when we began our journey, you know, last year, to align with what our company is doing and our health equity transformation initiative, my title changed. And it's, it's a testament of our commitment to meet our members where they are to help them live a healthier life. And that social determinant of health peace and, and, and understanding the needs of our members, um, the disparities index equation to, to, to really give, um, to, to legitimize um, the filters through which we, we view how we take care of our members and performance measures. Um, it's, it's just all a part of, of, of that approach to, to just meet our members where they are, to help them live a healthier life, the racial, the ethnic, the geographic, the demographic data, all of that informs our collective actions to address equity and, and our ability to build um, those data profiles and extract intelligence from the data helps us to hone in on what our members need, whether it's shelter, insecurity opportunities to, 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 to make an impact there, um, food insecurity, transportation challenges, um, access to income, lack of access to health services, empowerment through education. It just speaks to our commitment. And so that's kind of how my title changed last year. <laughs> well, that's along the lines of what I was going to ask you next about seeing mm-hmm. homelessness through um, a health equity lens. So tell me about empowerment. I'm just going to say the word and, and ask you to, to tell me, what does empowerment mean? How does that drive what you're doing as far as uh, supporting this population? Right. Um, you know, David, that's a really good question. I, I'll just go back to the gentleman, the, the example that I shared at the top of our call. And, and thank you so much for asking. Um, you know, um, I have not met him face to face. 
Um, but but our housing navigator, our case managers um, have become intimately familiar uh, with with the gentleman. And um, when you hear them speak about um, his situation and where he was and um, the, the the mental health, the behavioral health, the, the clinical, the social, when he he was not in a good place and and so after much work and much intervention and and seeking out community partnerships he he now has secure housing the emotional response is how he is empowered and 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 his expression of i can dance again that's empowering, providing him with the tools. And so from a social determinant of health perspective, that, that word, that, when we do that right, when we, when we take our data, extract intelligence from our data, identify opportunities to not only meet, but exceed the key requirements and expectations of our members, get them to a point where they are functioning independently, owning their health and wellness outcomes, that, that's empowerment. I want to talk about uh, outcomes 10 years down the road. The kind of program that you're trying to, to deal with, the, the housing navigation program, all the things that lead to, I've been saying homelessness, I'm going to say houselessness as opposed to homelessness, because there are people who are houseless, which means they are living somewhere or they're living in a shelter or they're living in somebody else's home um, and maybe even using the address, but they certainly don't feel the ownership of, of being where they want to be given that these kinds of issues are societal, they happen. Um, But still, what are we doing and how far do you think we'll be able to reduce these issues? United healthcare is committed to ensuring that no one lives without healthcare coverage. This, this landscape of redetermination that, that tends to be on everyone's mind these days, um, to that end, we are working very, very closely with our state partner um, and community organizations to educate everyone about options that are available to them in the event that they do not qualify for Medicaid. Uh, my product line, my scope is is Medicaid, our homeless navigator program. So, so that I wanted to say that for two reasons. One, United is committed. Um, we stand by our mission to help our members live a healthier life. We will um, continue to um, be innovative. We will continue to build upon this homeless navigator program and other programs that through dissection of our data, we see a need to have, right? So um, this this program came about as as an identified need in the community that was supported with data and other programs will come about um, as a result of an identified need in the community and, and underscoring with data, the fact that um, our mission is to meet our members where they are to help them live a healthier life. Our mission in order to do that is the commitment that we have to, to our members in the state of Florida. And so 10 years from now, our mission will not have changed. And 10 years from now, um, we will have amassed other innovations that, that result from a deep dive into our data and realization of, of the individual and community needs. That's where we'll be 10 years from now. Dr. Ava Jones, Director for Health Equity and Accreditation at United Healthcare Community and States Florida Plan, winners of NCQA's 2022 Health Innovation Award for the United Healthcare Community Plan of Florida Housing Navigation Program. 
Everyone, it's time again to focus on the place, the place that inspires and accelerates healthcare quality in America. And that place? NCQA's Health Innovation Summit. For three amazing days in October 2023, the Gaylord Palms Resort and Convention Center in Orlando, Florida will host our annual convention. Bringing together leaders from across the healthcare ecosystem, the summit will focus on all aspects of quality, including digital solutions, health equity, value-based care, and more. It'll feature thought-provoking speakers, one-of-a-kind education, and an exhibit floor showcasing the latest in innovation. Registration is open. Register now. Go to ncqasummit.com for more. Let's spend some time now talking about one of the most inspiring goals for medical staff around the country. When someone becomes an NCQA, patient-centered medical home, certified content expert, that means they really know their stuff. They become the go-to person in their office, maybe even in their whole company, for everything having to do with achieving or maintaining NCQA PCMH recognition. NCQA PCMH recognition, for those of you who've never heard of it before, is like a seal of approval for quality assurance in healthcare. A healthcare practice that earns that seal can be trusted for their dedication to delivering quality care, which means they're dedicated to their patients. And having a certified content expert, or a CCE, almost guarantees a practice will continue its dedication to excellence for years to come. That's just one reason why NCQA honors and celebrates outstanding CCEs each year. And right now in this episode, I speak with one of NCQA's 2022-2023 PCMH CCE Quality Award winners. Deneen Anderson works for the Capital Area Health Network, C-A-H-N, which is also known as CON, in Richmond, Virginia. She's been in the medical field for the past 15 years and has been a patient advocate for the past 14 years at Khan. Deneen is the transformation manager of the PCMH team at Khan. She started out in IT and she thought of becoming a minister, but fate put Deneen on the path to becoming a CCE. And she wears many hats. Here's just a few. She was point of contact for the Henrico County Refugee Program and helped schedule medical and dental services for refugee patients. She serves Khan on the interdisciplinary team, the Internal Quality Assurance Committee, the Board Compliance and Quality Assurance Committee, and the Risk Management Team. She helps promote Khan's partnership with the Text for Baby program. We'll find out more about that. She represents Khan on several external committees, uh, several local partnerships. Many are involved with children and youth programs and supporting Head Start in Richmond Public Schools. And Deneen is a past winner of the Virginia Healthcare Foundation Staff Member of the Year. She loves her community. It's where she grew up, and she gladly serves the people there. Sometimes it seems like she's everywhere at once, around Richmond, but right now, she's talking to us on Inside Healthcare. This is CCE Deneen Anderson. Patient advocacy is my number one job. Um, I'm here for our patients. I answer questions, concerns. I try to resolve complaints in a timely manner um, because, number one, we want our patients to be satisfied with the services that they're receiving. And in the event that there's any hiccups along the way, I try to help them um, to smooth those hiccups out and to make sure that um, they're on the right track to getting the health care that they need. Um, that takes up a large portion of my day, which people are like, how do you do all the other things that you do? Um, but I, I'm, I'm actively involved in, uh, in committees here um, at CON, um, and I also assist our chief medical officer as well, as he would say, I'm his left and right hand. Um, I'm all things patient, so when it comes to anything dealing with a patient, I am the it for the organization. I am all things patient. So what got you interested in patient advocacy in, in this kind of work? Or was this, was this always what you were heading towards or did it just sort of gradually, this is sort of your destiny? I think this was my destiny. <laughs> I came from the IT world. <laughs> so I was all, you know, IT um I was a staffing manager for an IT consulting company. So I was all IT world websites and 
the whole nine. And um, unfortunately, I was downsized out of my job and I ran across a wonderful opportunity to come to work for Capital Area Health Network. Um, I can honestly say that the CEO here at Capital Area Health Network, Mr. Tracy Kazi, he is wonderful. And um, whatever suggestions you have, he's willing to listen to and he will really um, support you in your endeavors here. So I had the opportunity to speak with some patients and got a lot of feedback from them, which I reported to him. And I was like, you know what? Khan needs a patient advocate. There needs to be someone between the patients and the services here. So I did a proposal and he, he really liked the proposal. Um, did it happen right away? No, I was here about a year in a different position prior to becoming a patient advocate. But I um, went to school online at Cleveland State University for patient advocacy. Um, and I also went to school locally at a place called Richmond Hill here for um pastoral care and counseling um, to help increase my listening skills, um, to be more empathetic and things of that nature to be more centered when I'm speaking with patients. So all of that helped me to become the patient advocate. So by the time they had funding for the position, I was ready. So who advised you on, on that path on putting together, was somebody helping to guide you in, in putting together a kind of a system for you? Well, actually not. Um, <laughs> I, my goal at one point was to be a chaplain. So that was where I was headed. Um, my goal was not to stay here at Capital Area Health Network, but to try to become a chaplain. And in doing that, I found that a lot of the things that a chaplain would do per se at a hospital or for patients in the hospital setting are some of the same skills that's required required being a patient advocate. So um, I was speaking to one of the marketing managers who were, was here at the time, and she was like, you ever thought about being a patient advocate? And I was like, well, actually not. So I looked into it and I was like, hey, that that sounds like me. That sounds like something I would be definitely interested in because I'm really compassionate and I'm all about people. Um, I have a, a really strong desire to help people and to be there for people. So that was right down my alley. And so where does PCMH come from? You have uh, recognition from NCQA for patient-centered medical home measures. And was was the program already in place and, and you you worked on it or you were put on it? Were, were you the one who brought PCMH into Khan? No, actually our CEO, Mr. Kazi, was um, patients in a medical home to Khan, and I was selected as one of the staff members to be on the committee. Once I was on the committee, I was like, hey, this makes sense to me. This is what we should be doing anyway. Um, the patients should be included in everything that we do. So all of the pieces came together in, for that puzzle for me, and it just all made sense. And the more I learned about um, all of the standards and the guidelines and all about NCQA, um, the more I was more intrigued about the whole thing. Um, and we were at we were at the conference actually, um, the PCMH Congress in Chicago, I believe. And I went to um, my CEO and I said, you know, I think I would like to become a PCMH CCE. Would you support me with that? And he said, absolutely. So I came back and I immediately signed up for the intro and advanced um, sessions that were in, they were in Tennessee. And I went there and um, I was like, yes, this is definitely what I want to do. So um, that started my path on becoming a CCE. And how's it been? How how how's it gone and how's it uh I no honestly how far have you gone and how much more did you have to do to become a CCE and then how has it felt to um to to get that recognition? Well, it was a little more difficult than I thought it was going to be. I thought it was just um, my knowledge of the, the standards and guidelines, but it was a little more. Um, and I had to study um, in order to take the exam. Um, so 
that happened and I became a CCE. And of course, you know, once you become a CCE, you can't just sit by idly. You have to keep abreast of all the changes that come down the pike from NCQA. You have to interact with other CCEs, um, attend as much training as possible so that you're not only prepared, but you can also help the, the medical centers that you're assisting. So becoming a CCE and being able to, uh, I guess you're, you're the, the point person for PCMH there is that is does that describe it or how yeah. how is it able to enhance the work that you do to improve not just improve it for you but I mean to just to to make the whole place better to make the network work uh, even more efficiently uh, and in delivering care more effectively to individuals. Well, I mean, a lot of the things we do automatically, but also just educating staff on a regular basis of um, what we're required to do, um, um, how we're going to do it and why we do it. Um, we include, um, well, I include a, um, a focus um, for each of our PCMH huddles. Um, so we they change up every two weeks and um, I include a standard, a guideline and explain to them, you know, the purpose of this standard and guideline and why we are doing it and how we're going to achieve that. So that even when we have new team members who come aboard who may not be familiar with PCMH, they can understand why we do some of the things that we do. I was going to ask you how the networks benefited from you becoming a CCE, but it's all it's 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 all right there, you know, and, and even more um, with new people coming in and, and others that are learning about PCMH uh, recognition uh, or working with you on it. Are they also interested or are you trying to drive them to becoming content experts uh, as well? Um, <laughs> are they are they looking at you in any kind of just inspired by what you've done or are they just are they? turning to you and saying, well, you know who would know the answer to that? <laughs> be yes, I, I am the it. <laughs> I think a lot of people are kind of afraid of PCMH because they really don't um, know what to expect or understand it. Um, but my other team members, they have um, been a part of the, the core team for some years now, but they still all rely on me. So as I'm learning, um, I bring it back to the team. Um, I share with them any resources that I come across. I share that with the team as well. So they, they look to me for that guidance. I mean, I would imagine that they know it's, it's important to be able to pursue this level of recognition. And uh, so however they feel about it, it it's, it's great that they have a CCE there. Um, and I'm sure it's one of the reasons why NCQA wanted to recognize you, um, even if you stood and you looked around and you said, we need a CCE here in order to to be able to pursue this effectively. So I'm just I'm, I'm going to be the I'm going to be the one. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, um, I, you know, in the past, um, when we first started out um, with our recognition, um, we had a consultant who came in and she was only here for one day. But, you know, PCMH is not just a one day thing, even when you're, you know, to the point that you're ready to submit for recognition. It's not a one day thing. No one can come in for one day and review everything that you've done and say whether or not you met it or not. Um, so you need someone who is understanding as to what is required while you're doing the work, not after the work is done. So, I mean. I've always been the type of person, if you put me on a committee, I'm going to do my fair share and some more. So I guess that's just how, you know, things happen. And my interest in becoming a CCE um, came about because the more I learned, the more I wanted to learn about it. Well, it sounds like, I mean, we have evidence to all of that, we, that you put Denise in the middle of something and you're going to take it on and, and, and push yourself to see how much you can do. I, I was going to ask you, to start talking about the other kinds of programs that you're doing in and out of, uh, of con, you have uh, the diabetes self-management education team, it's the DSME, and that's part of the capital area health network down in Richmond. So uh, what's your involvement with that? How did you get involved with that program? How's the program structured? Um, the program is structured. Um, it's a three-part program, um, education, nutrition, and exercise, that's the, the part of the program, it's three parts. Um, but I came aboard very early on when we um, started out to um, 
to achieve that recognition through ADA. I was one of the um, first committee members. Um, and actually, I even wrote part of the curriculum, the um, relationships, diabetes and relationships, because that's a part that people seem to forget about, diabetes and relationships. Um, and it's so important because um, when you have diabetes, it does not just impact the person with diabetes, but it also impacts the whole family um, in, in any relationship that you have. Um, so it's so important for um, our patients or our diabetes participants to be abreast of that as well. So that's how I came about being on the committee um, early on and was very excited to receive that recognition, just like with PCMH. Um, always great when we are able to achieve something and we've been able to maintain that as well as our PCMH recognition. Um, the good thing about the program was me being in on it and learning so much about it was I was able to recognize symptoms that I was having myself and went to my doctor and say, hey, I think I may have diabetes. And he was like, oh, no, that's not possible. And I said, please check me out. And surprisingly, I did have diabetes. Um, but had I not been a part of that program, I would not have recognized any of the signs and symptoms that I was developing myself. And I actually went through the DSME program. And when I first started out in the program, um, which is a 10-week program, my A1C was 11.2 because I had just been diagnosed by the end of the program. I was under nine um, within those 10 weeks. So, um, and way under nine now, but um, thankful to that program for that education because had I not participated um, in that program and just mainly just went to my doctor, I would have just received medication, but not all of the other information that you get from being a part of that DM DSME program. I wanted to uh, get a chance to ask you about your work with, uh, with kids, with public schools. With kid with programs for kids, because I know we have it, it, it's not just the work in public schools, but we're uh, some of the other programs, um, the text for baby program also. So uh, any of these programs that you want to talk about, tell us about that and um, how that work outside of con aligns with uh, the kinds of work that you do uh, within the network. Well, Khan has been a partner of the Text for Baby program for about 12 years now. Um, I was asked to participate in a webinar with the Text for Baby program to learn about it. And afterwards, I was like, hey, we definitely need to be a part of this. We need to be a partner. Um, you know, we have our pediatricians here, so we are seeing um, babies. Um, and then to learn about the infant mortality rate and things like that, I was like, oh, if we can do something about this, let's do something about this. Let's be a part of educating the community um, regarding infant mortality rate and things that they can do to have a healthier baby and things that they can do. Tell us what the program actually is, Sex for Baby. Text for Baby, I always describe it as the new age version of the book people used to buy, what to expect when you're expecting. Um, and people be like, oh, yeah, yeah, that sounds familiar. But um, the, when the program first started, moms were able to receive messages three times per week. Um, the messages were geared towards their pregnancy once they had baby. Um, the messages were geared towards baby for the first 12 months, three times a week from 12 to 18 months. The messages dwindled to twice a week. They now actually have an app as well. So they are progressing with not just the text messages, but also with the app. So what we at Con did to help promote that program and our partnership was we did we decided to have a community baby shower. And we would have community baby showers twice a year, um, open to the community, not just to con patients, to moms who were either pregnant or who had infants under 12 months so that they could fully take advantage of the program. But not only did we want them to take advantage of that program, we wanted them to know about our resources here and also other resources throughout the community that's available for moms and new moms. So we will bring all of those resources to the table as well and have a big community baby shower. It's a typical baby shower with food, fun and games, but also resources because the most important thing was for mom to know what to do for herself or her baby once she left that baby shower. So it's, um, a, it's a chance for people to meet. I mean, it's networking. Definitely. It's not business networking. It's life 
networking. It's the same exactly. as working with the diabetes program. People get a chance to, instead of talking to a doctor and getting a set of instructions, you get to talk to other people who are going through some shade of what you're going through. Exactly. Exactly. And it's very beneficial. Um, we even have our pediatricians there. So they're, they're able to even meet our pediatricians. So it's a, it's a really good event. Um, and like I said, for some of the moms, they're really new and some of them are really young and they have no idea what to do with this new baby that they're about to have or that they just had. So um, it's a really good event. I always promote Text for Baby program. Um, I tell people the messages that they send the three times a week, they're always so helpful and beneficial to the mom. You know, the fact that you're a patient advocate for Khan and Khan has all of these programs within it. Um, did you realize when you created that position pretty much? And did you realize when you created it that that probably would make you the point person or the hub of information that uh, if you have any kind of community-based program or, or uh, client or patient-facing program, they're probably going to say, oh, and of course, she's got to be on this too. <laughs> no, I had no idea that was going to happen. <laughs> Okay. So I want to ask you about what's new, what's upcoming for your work or how things are going to be and anything you want to talk about, especially if you want to talk about BCMH. However, the organization wants to grow and whatever involvement they want me in, I'm available. Um, I, I guess my passion for people helps me to do all the things that I do. I just love people and helping. Patient Advocate and NCQA 2022 to 2023 CCE Quality Award winner Deneen Anderson of the Capital Area Health Network in Richmond, Virginia. Now, if you're inspired by this story and you'd like to find out more about pursuing CCE status, go to ncqa.org and search for CCE or search for PCMH to find out about training and certification. And now it's time for Fast Facts, where we offer you tidbits of health information to absorb and distribute at your leisure. It's June 2023 now, and if I haven't said so already, happy Pride Month. In honor of Pride, I wanted to tell you about some federal resources dedicated to identifying gaps in health equity for the LGBTQ community. And you'll find links to everything I'm talking about in this episode's description, so check them out. I'll start off with a reminder for everybody that since 2021, the U.S. Health and Human Services Office for Civil Rights interprets Section 1557 and Title IX of the Federal Code interprets their prohibitions on sex discrimination to include both sexual orientation and gender identity. I'll give you links to that archived announcement from 2021 and the HHS page that mentions it, which also has more links and advice towards gender-affirming care, transgender patients seeking insurance coverage, and more. I'm also reminding our listeners now that NIH's Sexual and Gender Minority Research Office is dedicated to bringing together all of its resources for the support and betterment of sexual and gender minority, SGM populations. Check out the link for the office when you can. When you support someone who identifies as a member of a sexual or gender minority, you're considered an ally. That also means that you know that words matter. Names and pronouns matter. Asking the person for their pronouns and getting them right, all of that matters. So with all of that in mind, let me now explain two terms that are used in healthcare. I just mentioned the first, sexual and gender minority, SGM. The SGM Research Office provides this definition, and I'm quoting a definition for SGM. Sexual and gender minority populations include, but are not limited to, individuals who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, asexual, transgender, two-spirit, queer, and or intersex. Individuals with same-sex or same-gender attractions or behaviors and those with a difference in sex development are also included. These populations also encompass those who do not self-identify with one of these terms, but whose sexual orientation, gender identity, or expression, or reproductive development 
is characterized by non-binary constructs of sexual orientation, gender, and or sex. The other term I'll mention is SOGI, sexual orientation and gender identity. That's a term that we use here at NCQA as we continue to advance our health equity initiatives. In October 2022, NCQA discussed SOGI as part of our Future of HEDIS presentation. NCQA is committed to goals for the future state of HEDIS that include, quote, measure concepts that are meaningful to communities and help move the needle on barriers to care and disparities for sexual and gender minority populations, unquote. You can find out more about NCQA's drive towards gender-based health equity by searching our website or by going to blog.ncqa.org. As we do on each episode of Inside Healthcare, we ask for your thoughts on today's show. Email us at communications at ncqa.org anytime and be sure to include Inside Healthcare in the subject line. Okay, if you're coming up empty for something to say, here's our question for this episode. How can you best support someone who's trying to live independently? It's a pretty big question. It could mean a lot of things. So give us your comments, your responses. Think about it. Then tell us about it. And if you have a comment, a suggestion, an idea for a guest on our show, maybe you'd like to be that guest, just email us. Let us know. Communications at ncqa.org. And be sure to write Inside Healthcare in the subject line. Hope to hear from you soon. Well, that's it for episode 107 of NCQA's Inside Healthcare podcast. Quite a big podcast for you. Thanks for joining us this week. This episode's done, but there are plenty that came before it for you to explore and investigate. And you can find us once again at blog.ncqa.org or find us on any Apple or Google streaming app. Whether you download the show, whether you stream it, if you find this show, this podcast, then follow us and spread the word. Help us build our audience by letting others know about NCQA's work. If you haven't done so already, connect with NCQA on LinkedIn and Twitter. You'll get video promos for this show to share with your friends and colleagues. And as always, we thank you, our loyal listener, for helping our audience continue to grow. On behalf of our award-winning NCQA communications team, I'm Dave Smolar. We'll see you again, no doubt. You've been listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast brought to you by NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance. Inside Healthcare is available on your computer or mobile device through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on our blog at blog.ncqa.org forward slash podcast. <laughs>